0: You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. Women are less likely to survive heart attacks than men. No one knows why. Traditional cardiovascular disease thus seems not so traditional when it comes to managing our female patients. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Day Spring. He is one of the most requested speakers in the United States with expertise on atherothrombosis, lipoprotein, and vascular biology. Dr. Dayspring has given over 2,500 lectures. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dayspring.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be chatting with you and your audience.
0: I was wondering if we could start with just the basics and talk a little bit about how common this disease is in women compared with other diseases in women.
1: What better to start right there, as I think more and more physicians and hopefully the women themselves are starting to learn, although it's taken tremendous education, is that cardiovascular disease is by far the single largest cause of death in women at the current time. Many are shocked to hear that more women than men die each year of cardiovascular disease. Practitioners have to learn to really recognize the risk in women and be very aggressive with our lifestyle and perhaps pharmacologic recommendations to abort this epidemic. And The H.A. points out that even modest approach to this nightmare could have tremendous both economic and obviously personal benefits to the patients. So it's a crisis.
0: Historically, we were taught in med school and residency that women will get heart disease 10 years after men. Does that still hold any water?
1: We have to be careful when they say that. When you're talking about clinical events, that is true. But the real question is at what age do women develop the atherosclerotic uh, pathology that ultimately will lead to the clinical events? And we have nice studies that follow people from youth up to adulthood, Bugaloosa Heart Study, the P-Day Study, and surprisingly, men and women develop atherosclerotic plaque at the exact same rate in both genders. If we autopsy men and women between the ages of 15 and 35, about 20% of them will have clinically significant atheroma in their coronary arteries. So the disease process is occurring at the same rate. Yet, clinical events, having a myocardial infarction, needing a bypass, a stroke, etc., definitely seems to lag about 10 years later in women and men, and there are a lot of speculative reasons as that might be so. So whereas the average man becomes at high risk in between 50 and 65, the average woman is likely to manifest an event at 65 to 80 or so. If we're vigilant, we can discover the atherosclerotic process early in life when probably just aggressive lifestyle would arrest it.
0: Well, you mentioned that you know we both develop the same disease at about the same time, but it doesn't really blossom or become a problem until later in life for women. So the first thing that pops in my head, obviously, is something's protecting them. Something is keeping their plaque stable and not vulnerable for an extra 10 years. Do you think that is the you-know-what?
1: Obviously, the thing that would jump to both of our minds are there are obviously hormonal differences between genders and could the hormones at play somehow have an effect here? And I think many of us believe that's true. And uh, later on, we'll get into some of the specifics of what exactly hormones, both androgens and, of course, uh, estrogenic hormones, might play in modulating the vascular system.
0: Dr. Dayspring, are there risk factors that are a little different for women or are they pretty much the same as for men?
1: In general, risk factors are the same, although when you talk about some of the lipid risk factors, there will be gender differences or so, but in the most recent guidelines from the American Heart Association, by the way, they're the only organization that has specific cardiovascular guidelines dedicated to women, and there was a 2000 update published this year that is well worth reading. The risk factors they list for women are smoking, poor diet, physical inactivity, central obesity, family history of premature vascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, the metabolic syndrome, and poor exercise capacity. And I think most of us would agree they are obviously risk factors for men also and it would vary between things. So the classic risk factors are the same. The risk factors are the risk factors. And again, we have to be very vigilant in looking for them.
0: You mentioned that there are unique guidelines addressing cardiovascular disease for women. I'm wondering in your own practice, do you see a lot of women that have no risk factors and yet still have significant coronary artery disease.
1: Well, this has been one of the big problems and why perhaps we've missed a lot of coronary disease in women or so, because unless you're real careful at checking out every risk factor and you're very astute at understanding lipid abnormalities in women, it's very easy to look at a woman and say, ah, that's... Yeah, that's a risk factor, but it's so minor I don't have to worry about it or so. And that's just not true. Even the subtlest of abnormalities of the risk factors I just mentioned can translate into a tremendous lifetime risk of uh, a coronary artery disease in women. In fact, this would be a good time to talk a little more seriously about how we do risk assessment. In addition to the AHA guidelines, of course, the Bible is the National Cholesterol Education Program Adult Treatment Panel 3. That is certainly a medical legal standard of care and an excellent evidence-based guidelines on how to approach cardiovascular disease. And unless you're in a high-risk category, NSEP uses what's called the Framingham Risk Equation or Framingham Risk Scoring to ascertain are men or women in a low, moderate, high, or now a new very high-risk category. And, of course, our treatments will be more aggressive in those in the highest-risk categories or so. The problem with that, and the uh, new AHA guidelines addressed it, is there are problems with the Framingham risk scoring system in women. And in fact, there are several shortcomings. And this came about because those of us who deal with women in heart disease who have done Framingham risk scoring in the past have noticed we have women who have subclinical heart disease discovered on carotid IMT or coronary calcium scoring who, if we apply the Framingham risk equation, it tells us that's a low-risk woman. So obviously there's a disconnect here. And the new guidelines have a discussion saying in women, the Framingham risk equation has the following shortcomings. Number one, it focuses on the 10 year risk of an event. Well, you know, young women are probably not going to have an event in the next 10 years, but lifetime, they're incredible risk for heart disease. So, should I wait till somebody has an event and they're a high risk person before I treat? Obviously not. They point out that the Framingham risk equation does not take family history into account, and that's a crucial risk factor. Framingham, of course, is mostly looking at Caucasians. More and more of our population in the United States is multi-ethnic, so does Framingham really apply to non-white populations or so? The AHA has taken the bold statement that, look, if you do Framingham risk scoring, And she calculates out to be a high-risk woman, has greater than a 20% risk of an event in the next 10 years. I think we can all believe that. But if Framingham risk category tells you she's a low-risk patient, hold your breath for the following statement. They say if a woman has a single risk factor, she has a lifetime risk of heart attack of 50%. And this applies to women 50 and above. So if you have a 50-year-old woman who has poor exercise capacity, a 50-year-old woman who has subtle hypertension, a 50-year-old woman who has one lipid value out of control, she has a 50% risk of lifetime. Her 10-year risk may not be high, but ultimately she's going to be buried with this disease. And I think you and I would want to get in there with serious recommendations to have her correct her risk. So with women we have to be very suspicious that even one little risk factor, we got to go to work.
0: You know, what's what's even the purpose of using Framingham if it's missing so many women? So many women are, are kind of flying under radar using that formula.
1: The new AHA guidelines would say, look, do it. If she calculates the high risk, believe it and treat accordingly. But if she doesn't, Still look for individual risk factors and treat them aggressively, even though Framingham Risk Scoring would say she's low risk, because lifetime she is not low risk. And again, we have to get away from, I'm only going to be your doctor for the next 10 years, so that's my only worry, what's going to happen to you in the next 10 years. Many of us have very long-term relationships with our women. I don't want her to have a heart attack when she's 52, but I don't want her to have one when she's 72, and the time to prevent the 72-year-old heart attack is when she's 50. So again, guidelines are wonderful. Framingham risk scoring is wonderful, but as long as astute clinicians understand the weaknesses of it and how to work around it, I think we'll all do a better job.
0: Let's move on to lipoprotein, since that's what this show is all about.
1: My favorite subject, and and we just have to become smarter in understanding lipids and their relationship to lipoproteins. It's really the lipoproteins that carry the sterols into the artery wall. So we really have to know who has aphrogenic lipoproteins in the plasma, the cholesterol delivery truck, so to speak. Now, we can look at lipid concentrations and predict does a person have atherogenic lipoproteins? Some of us are actually moved on to quantitating atherogenic lipoproteins with advanced testing or so. But here's what the AHA guidelines tell us now with women. It would be very desirable if every woman in America had a total cholesterol under 200 milligrams per deciliter or an LDL cholesterol under 100 milligrams per deciliter. Both of those are lipid surrogates of atherogenic ApoB containing lipoproteins. So if they're high, clinicians must address. Restoring these levels to normal using lifestyle, and if lifestyle is not done or it doesn't work, then consider pharmacologic treatment. There are no gender differences with total or LDL cholesterol levels, although the women's guidelines doesn't put it in three or four categories. They just wish all women had an LDL cholesterol under 100. With respect to triglycerides, they agree with NSEP, but desirable triglyceride level is above 150 for the reason that women with trigs above 150 probably have too many atherogenic ApoB, VLDL, and LDL particles. And if we could lower trigs, those atherogenic lipoproteins would be minimal. For years, we've thought there was a big uh, gender difference in triglyceride levels, which may be related to the hormones. Although the most recent meta-analysis, which was a quarter of a million folks, showed triglycerides as a serious risk factor in both genders, but there's plenty of earlier data suggesting that triglycerides may be a little more serious in women. Perhaps it's related to there's increased insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome in women as they age. The one lipoprotein or lipid concentration that there is no doubt there are gender differences would be HDLs. The AHA says it'd be nice if women had an HDL cholesterol greater than 50. As you know, with men, 40 is usually considered acceptable. And the gender difference there is easy to explain. Androgens suppress the formation of APOA1, the HDL precursor particle. Androgens induce hepatic lipase, which remodels HDL into small particles. Obviously, women have less androgens than men.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas Dayspring, for joining us today. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and for comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.